Thanks as always for listening to Fluff and Crunch. Today's episode is about castles and crusades. A little bit about the system, a little bit about some of the books, and some commentary on how I've been using it to run a Pathfinder adventure path. Well, hello. If you're watching this or listening to it, uh, you're only going to hear my voice or only see me today. And that's because uh, Chris and I have had some scheduling challenges lately because he is on the other side of the planet. Or rather, we're on opposite sides of the planet, different hemispheres, however you want to say it. And uh, it's been tough to schedule. We usually have a, a bit of a surplus, a backlog of episodes. We're a few weeks ahead. But um, just things, life, have gotten in the way. And we have not been able to record as many episodes as we'd like. So I have recorded this one just in case our next recording session falls through so that you, dear listeners, have something to listen to. Um, I want to talk today a little bit about Castles and Crusades. Uh, Castles and Crusades is a fantasy role-playing game put out by Troll Lord Games. And uh, there are... It's a pretty, I think it's a pretty popular game in a, uh, a subset of the fantasy gaming population. Obviously, the fantasy gaming population, tabletop-wise, is overwhelmingly D&D 5e. So every other subgroup is, is quite small. Um, but Castles of Crusades has some very, very vocal proponents. And I've also seen a lot of misconceptions about it. Uh, so I'm going to give a little bit of background about what brought me to the game. Uh, what I'm doing with it right now, um, some of the things about the game that I think are worth mentioning system-wise and setting as well, uh, and try to clear up some misconceptions. So um, this is not meant to be a deep, deep history of the game itself. It's more of a practical, what's it about now and what can I do with it now uh, kind of episode. So if you are a regular listener, uh, you know that I have many bones to pick with 5th edition D&D, uh, that I'm not a fan of it. Uh, I'm not going to grind on and on about that. There's no reason. Um, however, the D20-based, uh, more of a stripped-down, simple fantasy system is of interest to a lot of people. A lot of people enjoy that kind of D&D feel. And 2D20, my favorite system, does not provide that. It provides a very different feel at the table. Um, mechanically, I think Chris puts it well. He says that 2D20 can be kind of gamey in that there are some significant meta layers with the meta currencies and things like that. Uh, that make it for a very different feel. So my group uh, had been interested in playing a, a fantasy game, and I was interested in getting back behind the, uh, the screen, figuratively, because I actually don't use a screen at the table. And um, I really didn't want to run 5e. I really didn't want to run Pathfinder. And I didn't actually want to run Aris uh, to power... Uh, a fantasy game for us because I didn't want to feel like I was forcing my game on my players, even though they were interested in it. And also, frankly, I've played a lot of 2D20 over the last few years. And so I wanted something a little bit different. You know, hey, I love pizza, but that doesn't mean I want to have pizza for every single meal. So I started fishing around and looking, and I had heard of uh, CNC. And the folks at Troll Lord are nice enough and confident enough in their game that they actually provide their eighth printing of the player's handbook for free as a PDF download. So I downloaded the thing and I read through it. And, and by the way, you notice I said printing, not edition. Uh, Troll Lord, since the, uh, the beginning of this game, the creation of it, uh, they've made tweaks from what I understand to the system, but they really haven't changed very much. So they don't have new editions, at least they have not thus far. They have, multi, they have new printings. And so the art's different. They add some things to it. Like for example, the ninth printing of the player's handbook, which I have with me here, 
in physical copy. The ninth printing takes classes all the way up to like 24th level, whereas the eighth printing stops at 12th level. So you could say, well, you know, it's different. There's more to it, but the, um, it's not like the difference in edition changes, like third edition D&D to fourth edition D&D to fifth edition D&D, where there are significant compatibility issues between the editions. Castles of Crusades doesn't do that. So anyway, I, uh, I downloaded it. I read it. I was interested in it. As I do, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and read a bunch of reviews about it. And I thought, huh, this is worth looking into. So I picked up the PHP. Um, and I'll circle back to my purchase experience with these things uh, here in a moment as well. Picked it up, read it, decided this is what I want to run. And this is why I decided this is what I want to run. And this is really the meat of this episode. What's this game, Castles and Crusades, all about? Um, Castles and Crusades is a D20-based roll-high system that is in a lot of ways in the most simple like perspective on the mechanics is very similar to 3rd edition or even 5th edition D&D. There is a unified mechanic. Um, you have the same six, six stats. You have hit points. You have saving throws, although those are handled a little differently than 5th uh, edition. And, um, and you, you roll a d20 plus a modifier or two, depending on the situation, and you try to meet or beat, you know, roll equal to or greater than a, um, a number. And then you're successful, and then you do damage. And a lot of the, the, the classes, it's a class-based system, a lot of this is going to be very familiar. Anyone who has played 5th edition, 4th edition, anyone who's played any edition of D&D is going to look at Castles of Crusades and say, wow, so much of this looks very, very familiar to me. Where the game differs is in the core system, some of the things that the core system does, and my perspective at least, all the things that the writers deliberately left out. And then there's also a, um, a bit of Castles of Crusades. There is a, there's a feel and a vibe and a, an experience, I think, that the authors want to try to... Um, enable, facilitate at the table that the rules do. So, like I said, core mechanic is, is essentially the same as third edition or, or fifth edition. Um, we bring back for, uh, for various classes, um, instead of a base attack bonus, there is a bonus to hit, which varies by class. Uh, you know, a fighter starts out at first level with plus one. Okay, great. Well, uh, uh, a rogue has a plus zero at first level. And so those uh, grow at different rates depending on the class. If you played third edition, you're going, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. If you played Pathfinder, anybody, okay, that totally makes sense. I'm not going to go into great gory detail about the combat mechanics because, again, you can download that player's handbook for free and you can read them. Uh, initiative is really simple. Uh, you use your bonus to hit and either your strength or your dex modifier, depending on whether it's melee or ranged. You roll versus armor class. Uh, there are situational modifiers. Um, as you would expect, you know, there's a table of those. It's not too, too long, but they're things that make sense. Um, and thus, I mean, if you're a, if you're a Pathfinder or a Pathfinder 1st Edition or D&D 3rd Edition, uh, player, or if you like the idea of, oh, I'd like to have a bunch of different kinds of combat modifiers, like, are you on the higher ground, or, uh, you know, hiding behind something, things like that, you will, I think you, you would find interest and value in this, because it looks like that, just the lists are shorter, it's not as detailed. Um, damage is 
it's damage, you know, and it's a, it's a stat modifier plus a die roll based on the weapon. Um, hit point totals tend to be on par with, you know, fifth edition, uh, third edition on from there. Um, healing is, uh, healing is a lot slower. And this is where, this is the first moment where I can say there's a vibe thing going on here. The designers put their thumb on the scale of the system to say, you know what, we, we want, we want kind of a first or second edition feel a little bit, but without the convoluted mechanics. So healing, healing is harder. Uh, healing takes longer and it definitely does. And when your character is not as uh, super heroic and can't just heal like that, if you have a cleric around, that's going to help. However, uh, you still take a while to heal, and those spells run out quickly. Um, that changes your behavior as a player, and I like that. Uh, I, I like players to have to think instead of just kicking the door because they know that they're basically invincible. Uh, so there's a, there's a moment where I'll, I'll depart from talking about some of the, the particulars of the system and say that what I've seen a lot of conversation about CNC Online is is based off of this misconception that it's an OSR game or it's an Osric game. It's one of these old school Renaissance or those types of things. Like it's a throwback. In terms of general vibe, I agree. Mechanically, I totally disagree. Um, this is not like sitting down with Basic or Expert or Old School Essentials. One of them. I mean, that's a, a name of a of a uh, of a retro clone. Um, or even turning back to, like I said, the basic or expert rules. This is not that. There is a unified core mechanic. Um, the system is streamlined around that core mechanic. Um, Non-combat task resolution is very simple, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, and so in that respect, it is very much unlike mechanically the earliest versions of the game, but the vibe of it Actually, it's, it's an interesting thing. It feels like an older version of D&D, but it does not mechanically function like one, which I actually think is a good thing. Now, how about non-combat skill, uh, non-combat resolution? There are no skills. I almost slipped and said skills. There are no skills. Go, Wait a minute. How do you do things? There are no skills. Everything that's non-combat and saves is based around attribute checks. So, whereas in modern versions of you know d20 games and 5e being one of them pathfinder another one you have a a a stat skill combination and some kind of you know proficiency or other bonuses sources of bonuses and you roll and you know you have a skill or you don't have a skill and i know fifth edition says you can do this but i have never met anyone who has played fifth edition with no skills and just run everything as an attribute check well that's what castles and crusades does so if you want to push something out of the way, that's a strength check. You want to climb up a wall, that's a dexterity check. Uh, if you need to resist a poison, depending on the nature of it, that might be a constitution check. Okay? And here's where something, I think this is a really clever innovation that Troll Lord came up with for uh, CNC. They have what they call the siege engine. That is their, like, you know, the, the Watsi had the D20 uh, mechanic or the D20 game. They have that, that is the title for their system. Now we call it the fifth edition of, you know, whatever. They call theirs the Siege Engine. Okay, all capital, uh, the word Siege, all the letters. And what this very simply is, it's kind of funny because when I first re started reading, I was like, oh, it's going to be this like, you know, really involved mechanic. It's really not. It's actually quite simple. Um, 
when you roll an attribute check to do something, to uh, convince someone using a charisma check, to intuit something using wisdom, uh, to figure out like some naughty intellectual puzzle or something like that, that would be intelligence. You roll your, you roll a d20, obviously. You add your stat bonus, if you have a stat bonus. And then if, it's, if it sits within what would generally be considered to be the purview of your class, and the suggestions from in their book are that the, the GM should be, uh, or rather the castle keeper, that's what the GM is called in Castles and Crusades, castle keeper. So the castle keeper believes that this sits within the purview of your class, and they should be, um, the, the benefit of the doubt should be on the player. Then you add your level. Now think about this for a second. If you're a rogue uh, and you're used to doing like sneaky thievy kinds of things, um, climbing up a wall, or let's say stealthing, moving stealthily, that's going to be a dex check. Um, it makes sense that as you get better as a rogue and you do those kinds of things and you practice in that way, that your rogueliness is going to be applicable to that general sense of who you are as a class is going to be applicable to tasks that fall under that broad heading. So if you're a third level rogue and you have a dex bonus of two, you're going to add five to your siege check, that is the d20 roll, and you're going to try to meter beat a, um, a number. But there's more. Castles and Crusades has this really nifty idea of primary and secondary attributes. And at character creation, whether you are human or demi-human, they use that term, so like elves, dwarves, you know, those kinds of things are demi-humans. Um, you know, in D&D, in &D, when you play a human, you get some mechanical bonuses to uh, make up for the fact that you don't have all these, like, you know, racial abilities, like, you know, dark vision or, or whatever. What CNC does is they account for that by when you are, if you play a human, you choose three of your attributes to be primary and three to be then therefore secondary. If you're a demi-human, you only get two primary attributes and you get four secondary attributes. What does that mean? Okay. When you roll siege checks, that is when you roll non-combat attribute rolls, this has nothing to do with combat, okay? Put aside combat. When you roll a non-combat, when you roll a siege check, what's going to happen is the base difficulty and this might sound a little confusing, but I'll make sense of it. The base difficulty for a, a check that's related to a primary attribute is 12. The base difficulty for a secondary attribute is 18. Okay, so let's go back to that, uh, that rogue, that thief. Yeah, rogue, sorry. The rogue is trying to be stealthy. The rogue is third level, has a plus two uh, dexterity bonus. That, that character has plus five. So you roll the d20, and if, and Dex, in that case, Dex is going to be uh, that character's primary, one of the primary attributes, because each class has a single primary attribute that's required. So a fighter, it's strength, okay? Um, a cleric, it's wisdom. You know, it, each class has one primary attribute you must choose. The other primary attributes you have, you can, you can choose as you wish. I'll come back to that in a second, because I think that's really neat. Our rogue example, third level, plus two, so you have a total of a, a base bonus of five. You're going to roll the die 20, and you're going to try to meet or beat 12. That's your absolute base. Now, the GM can adjust that based on the situation. 
you know, it's broad daylight. It's going to be a little harder, so I'm going to add three. And there's guidance in the book for how to adjudicate this. So if your base for that difficulty was 12, because it's a, based on a primary attribute, the GM says, you know what, I'm going to add three to it. Now it's 15. So you still have your plus five. You're trying to meet or beat 15. Okay. Now, if you are a cleric and you're trying, and dex is not your, one of your primary attributes, you're trying to creep around, um, your GM might say, listen, you know, creeping around quietly is not like so far out clericness that, that I'm not going to hold that against you. So I, I will let you, uh, you know, I will let you add your level to it. Um, but let's say that, that, uh, that cleric also has a dex bonus of two, but dexterity is not one of that character's chosen primary attributes. So their base difficulty is now 18. So they have, and they're also third level. So three plus the two, they still have that base of, of plus five. And the GM says, it's broad daylight. So actually it's not going to be 18. It's going to be 21. You can see here, you're like, wow, that's, that's really high. Remember, because you're stacking, you're adding the level in there, as your character levels, your character's going to get better at everything that broadly fits under their class. And really that, um, the only time that a GM is, is or, sorry, Castlekeeper, is recommended to not include the class level in a siege role is if a character is trying to do something that would muscle into the, the, the class of another. So if the cleric goes up and tries to pick a lock, Cleric's not going to have, you know, native ability in that. That's related to their class. So that's when the, the GM would say, and I'll just say GM. That's when the GM would say, you know what? We're not going to include your level here because it's really not related to your broad career field. By default, you do. But when it, when it, when it involves some degree of niche protection for classes to keep each class special within each area, then you would, you would exclude the level. And you might think to yourself, well, that, that might sound a little fiddly. Uh, one of them has a base of 12 and one of them is a base of 18. There's another way to look at it. And this is actually the way that I run it at my table. Primary attributes get a base of plus six. A base of plus six plus their level, plus whatever stat modifier, attribute modifier they have. And think about it. The math comes out the same. Because if you tell the player, if the, the fighter who has a, uh, whose strength is one of their primary attributes, that is class required. So every single fighter has at least one of their primary attributes is strength. The fighter is trying to push over, this is actually an example from the book. Fighter's trying to push a statue over on a goblin, gonna squish the goblin, terrific. So the fighter already has, you could either say your base is 12, or you could just say everyone's base difficulty is 18, but if you're using a primary attribute, you also have plus six. So your third level fighter with a, let's say, let's just go with plus two strength to make life easy. Your third level fighter, that's three, with a plus two strength bonus, plus another six, because if strength is a primary, already has plus 11. They've got to beat an 18. And if there aren't any other situational modifiers that the GM uses to increase that difficulty, or actually in some situations, they could decrease it, okay, for whatever reason. Then they're rolling against an 18. That's how I run it at my table. Everybody rolls the base difficulty, which I then can modify depending on the situation. The base difficulty for non-combat checks is 18. But if you're using a primary attribute, you automatically get an additional plus six, plus your stat modifier, plus your level, plus any situational modifiers. So that works out. That's really easy. Now, last piece on this whole primary secondary attribute thing. 
If you're a human, three of your attributes are primary, three are secondary. Aside from the one that is required by class, you can allocate the other two to whatever you want. And I think this is actually an, a simple, elegant, and really neat way to enable differentiation between characters of the same class. So for example, let's say you're playing a human fighter. Strength is gonna be one of your primaries. You have two others to choose. You could be like, well, do I wanna be a tough, strong, smart fighter? Hmm. How about a tough, fast, um, uh, witty, charismatic fighter? Okay, so by allocating, by choosing those other, your other primary attributes, or if you're a demi-human, you just get one because you get racial abilities that balances it out. Um, you can differentiate one class from another forevermore because, again, as you level, you're always going to use your, your, well, you're always going to use your, um, your level bonus, your, whatever your current level is, as a bonus, but you'll get that flat plus six, the way I look at it, on any primary attribute-based siege roll. And again, this applies to all the non-combat stuff as well as saving throws. And much like in older versions of D&D, you have, um, depending on the nature of the threat, there are different types of threats that are assigned under each of the attributes for a saving throw. So you know that if you're faced with a certain kind of spell or poison or whatever, you know, okay, based on that attack, I'm saving versus this attribute, and that's just a siege roll. Um, initially, it was a little wonky, um, and until I read in the Castle Keeper's Guide, which I'll come to in a second, um, the suggestion that, hey, you don't need to look at this as 12 and 18. You can just say it's 18 with plus six for the primaries. So once we did that, then it became very simple. Um, I just had everyone write plus six next to the, each of their primary attributes on their character sheet. And from that point forward, it was, it was very simple. Um, so like that's the core system. It's D20 roll high. Uh, there are no skills. And it's interesting, actually, in the book, the authors assert, they're very explicit about why they excluded skills. And I think this is an, it's an interesting argument. I think it's valid. I don't know if I fully agree with it, but I totally get where they're coming from. They say they leave out skills because skills actually limit people. It limit the skills they believe limit player creativity because they say this is like this is athletics or this is carousing or this is however granular the skill system is. And what that does then is it drives uh, players to behave in a certain way to follow their stats. Whereas if it's more abstract like what, you know, climbing up a wall, is that dex or is it strength? Well, depending on the nature of it, you know, maybe one or the other. Holding your breath for a long time, eh, that's probably constitution. Um, running a long distance, is that dexterity? Oh, well, that's maybe constitution. Like where's the break-even point? What this does is it creates at the table, thought by players and GM, and some conversation about, well, like how do you go about solving the problem? Instead of like, well, I have carousing of plus whatever, and so I carouse, you know, and and then it, and I think that the the creativity that this enables, um, and also this variable of primary versus secondary, creating more ripples and differentiation between the characters at the table, it it can encourage people. Sure, a lot of players are going to chase their their highest stats. I mean, who who wouldn't do that in real life? But it 
it just provides a broader category of work rather than a bunch of individual skills and then you dump experience into a single skill and you become a, a boring one trick pony where you know the hammer and everything's a nail um in play this is working this is working it took some initial adjustment over this idea of like well where are my skills what am i going to do but i think we've we've gotten used to it so I, I i like that i like it i like how it works out um and this also points to one of the things i mentioned a bit ago the many things the authors left out deliberately they leave out skills um they actually left they've, they've left out um feats although there are things that they have that are like feats that are optional in in the castle keepers guide um you have a lot of different class abilities and the class abilities are all pretty different and there are easier classes like the fighter as is you know the norm in most games like this the fighter is typically one of the easiest classes to play um whereas spellcasting classes um, offer you know more and different options and therefore a little more complicated but um but instead of having feats and i'll just use that word broadly in place of talents or or whatever else we want to call them what other games call them by leaving that out and relying on your class abilities to be the special things the things that that further differentiate you in terms of what you're able to do um i think that provides niche control but it also simplifies things when you add a level you're just looking at a class level table and saying all right i added these extra abilities um something that i i do like is that instead of and this is just personal preference over um, recent versions of 5e where you'll have lots of different class abilities and sure some of them like sneak attack grow over time but um but you tend to have as you level many more and different class abilities cnc i think pushes a little more toward having uh, a lesser diversity of class abilities there's still a lot but that the class abilities grow significantly over time. I, I, I think that's, that's interesting. Another thing too about classes that I found very interesting, especially with your more like, what you would think of traditionally as more skill-based uh, characters like rogues, rangers uh, as well. They get, the, the, the class abilities are front-end loaded. So within your first couple of levels, you've got virtually all of your class abilities. And then they just grow in power and sometimes there's some nuanced changes to them over time in the levels but instead of like you know the ranger the ranger and the the rogue i believe they start with like eight or nine or like ten powers the class abilities at first level it's pretty amazing actually you can do a lot but you won't do it as well as you will later on as you're leveling because remember every single time you level levels being added into those non-combat roles and like i said it, it's it's working at the table um one last thing about uh about classes like i said i'm not going to get into you know great gory detail about what each of the classes are and how they function and all this stuff you can download the player's handbook for free and there's a link in the notes and you could do that um but one of the conceits one of the the stated rules is written things about cnc that really threw my players for a loop um initially is they have dispensed with common experience thresholds for leveling. So this is something that has started with third edition and is pretty normal now in like level-based games, no matter what company puts them out. Castles and Crusades classes level at different rates. So a rogue will level way sooner than a fighter who will level sooner than a, uh, an illusionist. 
or a wizard. Um, and so what you end up having over time is you have a party with characters of different levels, but the same number of experience points. Now, if you are a newer gamer, this might sound like this might sound like some kind of heresy or something freakish and weird. They have an explanation for why they do this. And it actually, I think it makes sense. Aside from the fact that, think about this for a minute, a, um, a wizard, like high knowledge uh, requirement for learning spells. It's going to take longer for someone to learn and grow in something that's inherently more complex and challenging than sneaking around and climbing up walls. So your rogue levels pretty darn quickly, your wizard far more slowly. However, as they pick up abilities, um, the, each of the classes grows in power. The, the authors are not trying to create this, like, the lie of this perfect mechanical parity at level between the classes. But what I've seen in practice is that the, the party that I'm running right now has a cleric, um, has a, a rogue, and then um, there are, well, I, I modified the illusionist class um, a little bit, like redubbed it the sorcerer, and I changed some things about it, but there's that. And then we have an optional class that's out of one of the other books from the series that's called a magic user, which I love. I love. That is so first edition, the magic user. And the magic user is this really weird, very different magic using class that doesn't have spells, um, but it works. What has happened in my game, we've been playing it for several months, is that now that they've accumulated experience, they're leveling, and they're all different levels, and it works. So once you get away from the idea that unless the characters are the same level, there's some kind of disparity between them, when you instead look at it and say, the characters are going to grow over time, and they're going to grow differently, but they're all going to be able to be functional alongside one another, once you get rid of that initial thought and accept the possibility of that second one, you'll recognize that it, it works. A um, couple other things I, I want to talk about about the system. Um, magic, rules as written, is, uh, like I'd say, very Vankian uh, in that there are all kinds of time requirements for how long does it take to pray for or concentrate or memorize a spell and how do you like the the spell slots of 5e that that's not that's not how it works um and so i think some people might chafe against that um there's that you read that in a player's handbook you'll you might see that and say whoa I, that that seems a little harsh it is it the the pew 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 fire and forget you know almost endless spells cantrips and stuff like that like that that doesn't exist it's far more like second or first edition in terms of how much magic can a spellcaster get use and prepare and have um, so there's that uh, I do want to address one thing about the GMing side of things um, the monster book monsters and treasures presents monsters a lot of them. Uh, that offer a very different stat block than what you see for player characters. And the, the term hit dice has meant something different in like every version of D&D where it's been present. But hit dice are front and center for handling monsters in Castles and Crusades. Uh, and without getting into all the details, which I said I wasn't going to, um, a monster's hit dice number is going to be 
one of, if not its most important number. And it's a wonderful thing actually for running monsters because when you're rolling, hit dice is the modifier for basic, not everything, but most things that a monster is going to do, attack, for example, or try to, uh, you know, outsmart or, or outstealth or whatever, you're just using hit dice. And so I'm able to run monsters directly out of the book without having to like write down all these stat blocks and figure, because the stat blocks are so streamlined. Um, I've found that um, that has helped tremendously. So, um, so hit dice are, are a big deal. Um, and the monsters book has, like I said, a whole bunch of different monsters in it and a bunch of treasure tables. I have not used treasure tables in decades and I have embraced them full on. It's a lot of fun actually, just to sit down and like roll treasure types and how many coins and how many gems and how many, that kind of stuff. Um, that warms my, uh, my yieldy player heart. Like I said, I, I don't think it's worth digging into all of the details of how, like I said before, combat works. Um, but, uh, but the monster stat system is streamlined and presented in a way that actually makes it really easy to GM. And I appreciate that. Now, talking about the books and a little, and I'll mention a little bit about their, their default worlds. A little bit about the books. There's Player's Handbook, there is a Castle Keeper's Guide, and there's Monsters and Treasures. You only need two of them. Castle Keeper's Guide, which is a, it's a brick, it's a big book, is, is explicitly listed as optional. You're like, whoa, wait a minute, how weird. All the core rules are in the Player's Handbook. And all of the monsters and magic items and treasures and all that kind of stuff that's all, and the experience system and how you gain experience from defeating threats and monsters and stuff, all that's in Monsters and Treasures. So it's kind of a cool thing. You only need those two books. If you want to play the game, you only need the PHP. If you want to run the game, you just need those two books. Now, the Castle Keeper's Guide is, like I said, it's all optional rules. And it is organized by chapter of like all the different angles on the game, character creation, magic, encounters, all kinds of things. And I, I mean, I get excited about new shiny things. Who doesn't? But honestly, the Castle Keeper's Guide is gold. It, it is totally optional. It's not necessary. If you want to run the game rules as written or play with house rules and stuff, you don't need it. I recommend getting it. Uh, it has some outstanding um, advice and ideas and a heap of optional rules or, or alternate rules. Uh, both, actually. Things you can add to and things you can sub out. Like, for example, it has several different kinds of approaches to the magic system. It has spell points. It has spell slots. It has, uh, you know, you, you, you cast and you, you have to roll to see if you cast. It has all kinds of different things. And see, and actually what I've done is we have the magic user, we have a cleric, and then we have the, the sorcerer, which is like a recast illusionist. I think I mentioned that. Magic user, we're running rules as written because it functions the way we all like. We are using one of the alternate magic systems to power the sorcerer. And we are using spell slots for the cleric. And I'm really happy with this, one, because I like those two alternate systems actually better than the rules as written in the player's handbook. But I also like the fact that two different spellcasting classes function differently at the table. I find no reason for, like I said, in 5e, or this is the same thing in 3rd edition, all the spellcasting classes really beneath the hood are almost the same. They all use spell slots. They all have cantrips. They're all kind of the same. No, your, your 
our gnome, who is a cleric, is going to use her magic because she gets her magic differently than the guy who's there, like, figuratively with his hair on fire because for some reason he can, like, make magic stuff happen, the sorcerer. So using those alternate rules, we've been able to provide some variety and a, and a different texture. Like when the sorcerer casts spells and does things versus the cleric, it feels different because it functions differently at the table, although it all sits well within the, um, the, the core rules, the unified mechanic. So Castle Keeper's Guide, honestly, is golden. Uh, great GMing advice and great uh, explanations of these alternate mechanics to give you a sense of why why does this maybe function differently and for me i enjoy that because it it then gets me thinking about how can i use the system to facilitate the story and i just did i just mentioned that because i want magic casting classes that are different to function differently i want that to feel different at the table so these alternate systems have enabled it so again you only need two of those core books but uh but all three of them is 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 nice um, now, I've picked up some other books because, you know, I've become a little bit of a slobbering fanboy of the game. Um, I've picked up several other books from them. Um, and I've also picked them up because um, Troll Lord Games, uh, the, the folks who are behind it, at least one of them is a veteran. And so they are very kind to veterans. And so they give 50% off. Zoinks. If you order directly from them, they give you half off the sticker price of their books if you can prove that you're a veteran. And they have, a, a, I think, a simple, respectful, and reasonable, non-intrusive way to determine if you're a vet. And so I've ordered a bunch of books from them because they're half off, and I want to support them, and so on and so forth. So I have picked up some other books, and um, I, I don't know very much. Is it Aird? Erda? Erda? I don't know how to pronounce their core, their default setting um, world. Through some of the books that I have, I have picked up some ideas, especially like deities and things like that, some ideas of what this world is like. But I really can't say anything about the world because I know nothing about it because I'm not using it. Because I'm using Castles and Crusades, as you listeners might recognize or, or remember, I'm using it to run uh, the Pathfinder Kingmaker um, adventure path. And uh, I'll wrap up with this commentary. How's that going? As a GM, story-wise and mechanically, how is that going? Uh, and the answer is well. Initially, I overthought it. I looked at all the Pathfinder stats, and I looked at the experience threshold, all that kind of stuff, and I overthought the heck out of it, which anyone who knows me personally is not at all surprised that I would do that. I overthought it, and I overcomplicated it, and then when I stepped back and breathed a little bit, um, I looked at leveling in Castles of Crusades, if you do rules as written, is very slow. It's going to take a long time for you to climb those levels. It's not this like you know, this D&D thing now where they're like, oh, hit second level by the second adventure and third level by the third adventure. And then like a new level every other, you know, everything is like, it, it burns hot and it burns up quickly in terms of your pushing your character up through advancement. Um, CNC deliberately slows that process down. However, there's commentary and suggestions if you want to speed it up or whatever. So what I did is I looked at a sense, I looked at how how quickly do my players expect to, to grow their characters? And how quickly do I want to do that as they move through this adventure path? And so I came to a, 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 
I came to a decision in myself as to how I want to handle that. I'm happy with how it's going so far. And what I then did is I set uh, experience rewards. I looked through the Pathfinder book and I have adjusted the experience rewards there, which obviously are Pathfinder first edition based. I've adjusted those so that as they defeat, overcome, whatever, different challenges and things that are presented in the adventure, they're getting a um, an adjusted amount of experience that has thus far enabled them to level, albeit at different rates because they're different character classes, at an overall pace that the players seem satisfied with and I'm happy with. It will enable them to meet the challenges that are to come, keep things challenging, but not let things stagnate. And that's hard, you know. Um, so that's what I'm that's what I'm doing with it. And and otherwise, converting monsters, like the few that I've had to convert, honestly, once I remind myself to not overthink it, I just turn to the Monsters and Treasures book. I find something that's like it, if it's not really, if it's not already in the book, and I just reskin. And that has worked fine. Um, I have two books of NPCs uh, that are you know, from Troll Lord that I've been using to stand it. I, I will grab at level um, or at the appropriate level uh, different major NPCs, not just your throwaways like Bandit 1, Bandit 2, but like named NPCs, especially in this um, adventure path that, you know, you're in one place for a long time. And so there are plenty of named NPCs that are going to be recurring. And so I'm just using characters from these NPC books and, you know, giving them the name out of the Pathfinder book and choosing a class that, in my opinion, best approximates what the story purpose of that NPC is in the book. So in summation, uh, Castles of Crusades is a simple, stripped-down, D20-based fantasy game that, in a lot of ways, mechanically, is very similar to the core of every edition of D&D from third onward. Like the, ver like the absolute most elemental uh, uh, dimension of the, the, the mechanics. But it's also built to feel and run more like earlier versions of D&D that are less superpowered, less superheroic, and, uh, and accept, in fact, embrace a slower pace of advancement and in so doing, also challenge players, because they're not super heroic, to think more and think differently as they move through the world. Um, content support for the game, I think, is excellent. There's a lot of different content, a lot of different books out there. And uh, the physical quality of the books, in my opinion, is outstanding. I haven't had any problems with these books falling apart or anything like that. I'm using them a lot now. Um, they look nice. They, they um, you know, they read well. And the if you're a veteran, <laughs> uh, that 50% off is absolutely killer. I'm a huge supporter of the friendly local uh, game store. I Absolutely. But 50% off, is uh, that's a deal I can't turn down. So, uh, so that's a good one. So anyway, um, I'll put links and uh, let me know what you think about the system, if you've played it, uh, if you have any questions about it, you know, there are plenty of uh, groups and forums and YouTubes and garbage like that, people talking about it. But if you want to talk about the game, leave a comment, uh, you know, like and subscribe. I'm supposed to tell you that repeatedly. Uh, 
leave a comment, join our Discord, get in the conversation about the game. Um, and again, you can download the PHB for free and, and read through it. My one last piece on this is a bit of advice. If you download the PHB, try to take the game objectively. Read it for what it is. Look at it for what it seeks to do, not what it does differently than 5e. That was a hurdle that some of my players had initially, like, yeah, but yeah, but it's not 5e. I recognize it, its strength and its fighting, and it, there's so many similarities, but they, they each function a little differently. You have to treat it for what it is and, what it's, and not what it isn't, but in some ways, when you look at the outside of it, you don't dig down into the, the depths of how it functions and why it functions that way. You keep asking yourself, yeah, but, my, but, but sneak attack, and that is an ability in this, sneak attack is X. Well, sneak attack is X in 5e. It's not the same in Castles and Crusades. So if you read the thing, try to take it objectively. Take it for what it is, what it seeks to do, what it seeks to accomplish, and how it tries to do that. So anyway, yeah, again, like and subscribe, get involved in the conversation, so on and so forth. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. Thank you, as always, for listening to Fluff and Crunch. You can join our Discord, you can subscribe to the podcast, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, all through the links in the show notes. Thanks again, have a great day, we look forward to talking with you.